Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. Today we will talk about Ursula von der Leyen's announcement that she will indeed be running for EU Commission president. We will also talk about the news that Mark Rutte, the current prime minister of the Netherlands, may be the frontrunner to be NATO's secgen. Then we will turn to a conversation with our CSIS colleague, Ilario Matsoko, to discuss growing European dependencies on China for climate technologies and China's EV export boom. We hope you enjoy the show. So let's dive into it. Now, Ursula von der Leyen announced that she's going to indeed be running for commission president. Her announcement came right after the Munich Security Conference, which was really darkened by the news on Friday of the conference that Alexei Navalny had died. Also, the Ukrainian setbacks on the battlefield, the lack of progress in Congress to provide funding for Ukraine, and then Donald Trump's comments about NATO. All of this, I think, have created a sense of crisis within Europe that Europe is not able to handle its defense without the United States. And so she announced her running right in on the heels of that. Yes, she did. And that that was kind of the political game in Brussels in the last few weeks is, is she going to do it? Is she not going to do it? And we should say when she says she's running, that means as the quote unquote Spitzenkandidat, which is an effort that was started in 2014, if memory serves, to have whoever will be the commission president be representative of the party that gets the largest share in the European Parliament. It's basically like the prime minister. Right. It's an effort in in a parliamentary system. In a parliamentary system. To try to make uh, the European Union a little bit more representative of the will of the people. So she would be leading the European People's Party because she in Germany is CDU and they are part of the EPP. So she is announcing herself as the candidate for this. She was not the last time around. I think that's important to note as well. She was kind of pulled out of the hat after a closed door uh, arrangement. I think Manfred Weber still has very strong feelings about this. He's the head of the European People's Party. Yeah. And he was the Spitzenkandidat yeah. no, last time. No, von der Leyen basically emerged out of a smoke-filled room. <laughs> <laughs> selected. It's like a brokered convention yeah, brokered here. convention that Ezra Klein is, is talking a lot about at the New York Times. But, uh, but essentially, they produced what I think has been one of the most effective European Commission presidents that we've seen. Yes. I, I think these her record is marked by those two not really contradictory things, but contrasting elements. On the one hand is she has shown an ability to act decisively, to really push a message forward, to try to keep the EU very visible on the global stage to really strengthen the US-EU relationship. And she's traveled all around the globe to be very present on this. The other one is maybe she has been a little too decisive in the opinion of some people. I think she's sometimes made decisions or announcements without consultation of the council or some other member states or other commissioners at times. And you would see, let's say, an announcement on Israel or on China come out of the commission or on Ukraine, and then a different, slightly different message come out of the external action service and then out of Michelle's office. So that's the other aspect is some people probably would say she's been too decisive and not 
consulting enough with partners. Yeah, I mean, God forbid the European Commission president actually have you know, thoughts and opinions and then, then move on them in power to act. And I think any strong European Commission president is then going to ruffle feathers with those that then want all decisions to be done at a national level or balk at whatever decision that, that she's made. What I thought was sort of interesting about this was a couple things. One, there was a story in the German press, and I don't know how uh, how real this is, that you know the U.S. was really pushing for her to want to be NATO sec gen, and that was sort of rebuffed. And obviously, I mean, I think this is where the amount of power that you have as a European Commission president when, compared to sec gen, secretary general of NATO, where you're, you know, essentially you're a convener in trying to then just make summits not a disaster and, and trying to get people on the same page, that you have far more power as she has demonstrated as European Commission president. But the other aspect of this that I think is quite interesting is that as part of her kind of announcement and part of what she rolled out at Munich was that the EU should have a commissioner for defense. Uh, the European Union is about to have a new defense industrial strategy. We will actually have an event here at CSIS in the coming weeks on this. But what you are starting to see is the EU in, in von der Leyen sort of highlighting the defense role that she wants the EU to play. Now, what's interesting about this to me is not only I think it's like beyond time that this, uh, beyond it's, this it's your past dream, time yes. that this happened. Yes, <laughs> I don't want to say dream, but this is something I think like should happen. But there's been this sort of narrative out there by sort of Euroskeptic defense analysts, which is basically most uh, defense analysts, that are like, well, the public will really react strongly to any kind of EU efforts to do defense. But actually, when you look at all, literally all the polling, it shows that there's more than 80% support within the EU, north, south, east, west, doesn't really matter where you are, for the EU doing more on defense. And there was a recent poll that had 87% are in support of a European defense policy. Now, I got some pushback on Twitter for highlighting this from from, you know, really respectful journalists being like, well, what, you know, what about the specifics here of like when, you know, would a would a Spaniard be OK with a German coming to their defense or something, whatever I'm it is. I'm not sure we're there yet, yeah. but sure. Yeah, sure. But whatever it is. Or they sort of mythically throw out like, you know, a European army would not be popular. But that's blah, not blah, what blah, we're blah. talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's not really what we're talking about. It's not at all what we're talking about, actually. But what you actually see in the polling is that Europeans know their militaries are crap and they just want defense to be taken care of. And when you get into the specifics of how this would be done, guess what? The public doesn't care, just like they don't care now. Anyone who works on American foreign policy thinks that that's going to like drive decisions, that American public opinion is being driven by how the Pentagon is structured? Like, absolutely not. And so what we see from the polling, to me, is a really permissive public environment for politicians to do big things. And in fact, there's been some academic research that has identified that actually the most popular aspects when it comes to European defense are big, bold ideas. And I think what we see here is that here's von der Leyen running for office in European-wide elections and then highlighting the defense portfolio. If this was like a big political loser, like, no, no one would be talking about it. Instead, she's highlighting it. And I think that demonstrates that there's widespread appetite for EU politicians to come up with solutions to their broader collective action problems when it comes to defense. I agree that people don't really care about the details and the nitty gritty of it. I think what matters is the top line messaging about how it's done. So not about like which part of the commission is going to do what, but more on the side of big, bold projects, how those are talked about, how those connect to jobs in each of the member states how these connect to what kind of money is put forward and where it's coming from. Because 
people won't care about the details, but they'll care about at least the impression that this is benefiting Europe as well. We've talked about this before. There's always been this undercurrent of anti-Americanism in Europe and multiple parts of it. And so I think as long as it doesn't turn into a toxic message of this is just us increasing money for American companies, then there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. I think the great irony is that if you actually were to sort of go down the path of a European army, which this is not what the European defense debate is about, but the country that would like probably freak out the most would be France. (laughs) And, (laughs) And actually it was the French who initially blocked the idea of a European army in the 1950s with we the European remember. defense community. <laughs> so like, I think what we're seeing here actually is, is evolution. And I also think there's an evolution here in Washington about um, how we see the EU's role in defense. At least I hope so. Just one last thing, at least for me, on, on the von der Leyen candidacy that I will be looking for in the next few months before the election is because, I mean, this was a campaign idea. The the commissioner for defense, obviously there's she needs to get approval for it, but it's a campaign idea. My question looking at this is, can she run as the EPP Spitzenkandidat while still putting the interests of the commission first? Because we've talked about, you know, there are plans for the green transition and agriculture and immigration, things like that, that the EPP parties across Europe have very strong feelings about. We talked about this in the last episode and how some of those those parties are trying to get on board this, you know, farmer revolts uh, train or tractor, I should say. And can she still push the commission work forward in the next few months? While campaigning, that's what I'll want to see. Well, I mean, they they put a pin in the Mercosur deal in part because they didn't want to deal with farmers. Well, they know they would lose on the vote. Yeah, but so I think in some ways this just reflects that Europe – the EU is sort of acting like a European parliamentary system where in the run up to the, the next German election, man, the, the Greens and the SPD and the FDP, who all, I think, loathe each other deeply now, are still, still in government. They're going to be, you know, the knives will be out while they'll still be in, in government running against each other. In fact, they're probably already out. But I think this sort of is a good segue, maybe, with knives out to talk about Mark Rutte, the Dutch prime minister um, who's on his way out, uh, if the Dutch ever form a new government. He seems now the front runner to be the next NATO secretary. Secretary General. This was met by howls of protest from Eastern European commentators online in particular, but basically, and many Americans as well, sort of saying, but wait, look at Dutch defense spending. And, you know, Ruta was sort of a champion of austerity. The Dutch were not investing heavily in defense for almost all of his tenure. And yet you're going to make him Secretary General. So why do you think he's sort of become the frontrunner, apparently gained U.S. backing as well? Well, I have some guesses just from what we hear in the press, a lot of the support that he has coming from the U.S. side, from the U.K., France, Germany. These are all countries, I think their leaders have a personal relationship with Rutte. He has been prime minister for a decade. And even though he's on his way out, we don't know when the next coalition is going to be formed. So he might be there for a while. So first guess on my end is just they trust him as a person and they think he's a figure that is high stature enough to do this job and has interacted with the leaders who he will be potentially working with as SecGen. On the flip side, what I don't understand is I agree with some of the commentators on, first, the Netherlands didn't really up its defense spending by that much. Two, and that's more on the EU side, but we're talking all about EU NATO, is he's been a key actor in throwing a wrench in increased EU spending. For years and years and years, but on defense as well. And he's always been the leader of the frugal group. Sure, multiple people would vie for the leadership of that one. And 
I'll add he was also not forward leaning at all on accession to EU memberships for some other countries, for bringing some people into Schengen, some people, some countries into Schengen. So I just, I understand why some countries in NATO think that he might be a good pick. On the policies, I'm very confused because I don't see him as a unifier. At least that's not how he acted at the EU level. Maybe it's a lot easier at the NATO level because as we were just discussing, you're mostly a convener and you need to be able to put people in a room and craft out priorities, the communique, etc. But can he can he really yeah. do that? Although he'll be out of a governing coalition, so maybe his incentives will be very different. I mean, I think he checks three boxes, and, and some of these boxes are serious and some aren't. I think number one is that he sort of checks the box, which it now seems a requirement to be a very tall European <laughs> white guy. Just like Stoltenberg. Yeah. The second is that you have to free Jens Stoltenberg at some point. He has sort of entered the Hotel California of being NATO sec gen, and you know, he's been extended now numerous times, and it seems like he he's like, you know, ready to no longer be NATO sec gen. And so you have to find someone. And this leads to, I think, the the actual reason why it's him is that I think there is some concern, or there is more than some, concern about having an Eastern European leader that is so focused on Russia. And I think that that's in some ways necessary to have that be NATO's focus. But the potential messaging, the potential willingness by many of Eastern European leaders to sort of just throw punches and haymakers at the Russians, which are fully deserved, I think send a little bit of concern down Washington's spine that is thinking a lot about the potential, about the need to avoid a nuclear escalation. And that remains sort of a, a Washington concern. It's oftentimes dismissed by Eastern Europeans. And I think when they do that, that actually freaks people in Washington out because then there's a realization that, oh yeah, the Eastern Europeans were on the other side during the Cold War and have no understanding of actually how close we came during periods in the Cold War, particularly the 1980s, when a paranoid Kremlin thought at one point a NATO exercise was going to, was essentially us launching a first strike and put up, you know, the entire world on, on nuclear edge. So I think there's, I think that has sort of rubbed the Eastern European messaging on that. I think that has led to sort of a counter concern about, hmm, maybe if you have an Eastern European leader, it could get into an escalatory cycle that Washington then can't control. And you don't think that's a little simplistic, Eastern European leaders? I think it's incredibly simplistic, and I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with it. No, but it's an interesting yeah. point. And I, so I think that Ruta is seen as both a figure that, that Washington and other of the Western European capitals have a, a degree of trust in. He's seen as a very likable figure that can get deals done, despite the fact that he's blocked a lot of things uh, at the EU level. And so I think he's seen as this sort of you know, convener role. But I don't think it's necessarily an inspired choice. And there was all this talk about NATO, you know, finally having a female sec, uh, sec gen, someone from Eastern Europe. So we shall see. I think that it's not necessarily a done deal, but but I think it, it looks like uh, Jens Stoltenberg, his time may, may be up. It's a really important time just because it's, it's worth, we're not going to get into it, it's worth mentioning this is the two-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine and the 10-year anniversary of the invasion of Crimea as well. So Yes, Eastern Europeans talk about Russia a lot, but it is top of mind. Yeah. You know, look, I think Kaya Kalas is phenomenal as the Estonian prime minister um, and has been incredibly you know, eloquent in, in speaking on behalf of Europe in many respects and when it comes to the threat posed by Russia. 
But Washington has some concerns about where things would go. And I also think some Southern European countries think that it would be devoting the entire alliance to the Russia threat. And while, you know, other countries are facing other challenges. So we shall see. This will be one of the things to look out for in the kind of road to the Washington summit that is going to happen here in D.C. in July. But with that, maybe we'll transition to our conversation with Ilaria. We are thrilled to be joined by Ilaria Mazzocco for a conversation on Sino-European ties. Ilaria is a senior fellow with the trustee chair in Chinese business and economics here at CSIS, where she's done extensive research on Chinese climate, energy and industrial policy. Of particular relevance to our audience, she's done a ton of work detailing growing European dependencies on China for climate technologies and China's EV export boom. She's also the author of a new CSIS brief titled Green Industrial Policy, a Holistic Approach, which examines the interaction between trade, geopolitics, domestic economic policy, and climate policy demands in the U.S.-China relationship. You can find links to all of these in the episode description. Ilaria, welcome to the Eurofile. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I thought maybe we could start sort of big picture. There has been lots of words thrown about, about decoupling and Ursula von der Leyen throwing out the word de-risking from the Chinese economy. You know, Europe has found itself in in a tough place economically. It, it's concerned that the U.S. is turning away from its sort of open market, globalized approach to trade. They looked at the, Europe looked at the IRA and with sort of with horror that it wasn't included in a lot of the subsidies provisions. And so it fears the American market is being closed off. And then it looks at China and and sees an increasingly tough business environment, and then the U.S. yelling at it to to decouple from China. How would you describe Europe-China business relations in the in the present moment? Thank you. I think this is a really important question and an important one for for people in Washington to actually understand, because Europe is obviously such a close uh, security ally, but an ally with which there has been some uh, struggles to actually find a more um, stronger economic partnership. Business relations between the European Union and China have actually been fairly good and have been sort of predicated on a certain complementarity of, of production. So you traditionally had components, machinery going from countries like Germany to China, and then those used to produce goods that were then exported back to Europe or around the world. Increasingly, we're seeing that China is producing those components and that machinery domestically. That's part of a long trend in China to indigenize manufacturing and more technology. It's also just, you know, somewhat of a natural progression in its uh, value added uh, going up the, the, the ladder of development. But certainly there were, you know, explicit government policies to indigenize more of the supply chain. This is putting a lot of European countries, in Germany, I would say, in particular, in kind of a difficult position. Uh, because on one hand, many of its companies still rely you know, a lot on the Chinese market, but they're coming in much more direct competition. In addition to that, I think we're seeing right now these three big trends that I think, you know, if you look at the automotive market, which I think we'll get to in a moment, it's like sort of encapsulates these really well, but I think it's a broader trend. You're seeing a surge in Chinese exports, the prices of which are actually remaining pretty low. Well, you know, obviously production in Europe is, uh, is getting more expensive for a variety of reasons. So these exports, you know, they're affecting global markets, global prices around in the markets. They're going in a variety of different sectors, including more higher value added ones. You're seeing Chinese companies internationalizing. 
So you're seeing industries like the automotive industry, but also, you know, battery, a lot of these sort of new emerging technologies, you see Chinese companies going out and setting up factories abroad. This is a trend that I think is still being understood. It's a bit new. And I think the implications are not entirely clear, but I, you know, we can talk more about it. But I think that is potentially an opportunity in some ways. And then thirdly, we're seeing the international response. And now, and we could talk about the European response. I think it's been perhaps one of the most muscular responses to this point, but I think you're seeing it in the US. But you're seeing also a lot of countries in, especially in the developing world, that are positioning themselves to attract more Chinese investment. So if you're looking at Thailand, Brazil, very explicit policies to attract more of those companies to come there and set up more of their infrastructure and factories and manufacturing. So that's actually putting developed countries in Europe in particular in sort of an awkward position where on the one hand it doesn't want those Chinese exports and it wants its own companies to be the ones that are they're dominating globally but at the same time it needs to sort of grapple with that internationalization of Chinese companies and sort of think through what are the risks and opportunities. So you mentioned on the efforts to indigenize the production etc that some of it comes from government policies. I'm curious for those of us who are less so on the China Observer train, how much of this has been government-driven in China? And is this one of the main concerns in Europe? Or are there other concerns regarding this production? It's a little complicated, right? I mean, China's a big country. It's a complicated country. Uh, different sectors operate differently. Um, I would say, in part, right now, there's a lot of talk about overcapacity, for example, in a lot of different sectors. A lot of that is, I mean, first of all, I think in a way, we, we're talking about overcapacity without having all the data. So, it, it, you know, in some cases, we know that there's more of a capacity, for example, the solar industry. In other cases, I think we still need to sort of figure out exactly what's going on. But generally speaking, you tend to have these waves of overcapacity in China because you have pretty uncoordinated industrial policy at the local level. So you have local governments that really are incentivized to help local production and uh, support local firms. And you so you see this, you've seen this over the years with steel, you've seen this with, domestically in China with coal, right? That's part of the reason why it's so hard to control construction in China is because local governments are like, oh, this is going to get a lot of jobs. We're just going to invest in this, right? And the central government might be like, actually, no, we didn't want that, right? Uh, it doesn't always work that way, but you, you see this, right? And so actually you see that the central government has for decades been saying, you know, we really need to consolidate the automotive industry, you know, and this is even the internal combustion engine industry. And local governments are like, yeah, no, but this like failing car company is actually employing a ton of people. We're going to keep keep it uh, alive. So I think we tend to think of China as this like, you know, highly centralized uh, dictatorship, right? And it certainly is in some ways, but economically, there's a lot of diffusion of power. So cities, provinces actually hold a ton of power. But you're also seeing, I think, the convergence of somewhat lower demand in China, probably overinvestment in some cases uh, due to, you know, the structure in China. And also in the case of some industries like the clean tech industry, they're actually responding to surging demand abroad that's not being met by supply abroad. If you're a Chinese consumer, you have the best choice out there in terms of cars. And you can buy, there's a huge selection of vehicles that are less than $30,000, right? You can buy electric hatchback now for $11,000, uh, the BYD. You know, the quality is obviously going to be a $11,000 vehicle, but, you know, that's that's quite significant. You just don't have that availability outside of China. Um, so, you know, you do have that demand that's pulling some of those exports outside of China as well. We want to dive into both electric vehicles and solar panels. Before we do, 
it it does seem to me that there's been a worsening international business climate in China that raids on major companies um, has has really kind of it's not it's not simply that the United States is sort of making this up in, in a threat conflation about the the threat posed by China. And and it does strike me that a lot of the Chinese actions have then have soured the business climate and have led major international businesses in the US and Europe to sort of think twice about their kind of investments and engagement with China. Am I overstating that? Is that seen in, in Europe as well? What has been the European reaction to some of the actions that we've seen from Beijing? Yeah, I mean, foreign direct investment into China is very low right now, right? It's record low levels. There is a, there are serious concerns and they're, you know, due to the business environment in China, as you know this, I think it's also de-risking, right? Country uh, Companies are aware that maybe being too invested in China is a liability and maybe the cost doesn't justify the benefits, especially because within China, they're, they're being, they're competing much more with Chinese companies, in part because those companies also receive government support, right? Or they're part of a broader strategy to localize production. So yes, that is that is true. Interestingly, I mean, I think some companies, and you see definitely see this in Europe. Some companies are doubling down, though, right? So if you look at Volkswagen, they're making huge investments in R and D in China, right? So it's not that all companies are pulling out, and even some companies like Stellantis, which looked like they were sort of retreating from the Chinese market, have gone ahead and, and uh, you know, created a partnership with a Chinese company, which uh, raises some questions over, you know, how much you're actually planning to retreat from the Chinese market. Right. And I guess they're doing that because they want access to this huge Absolutely. market of, that is increasingly wealthy and consumers, and they want to be part of it, right? Absolutely. Right. And I think in some cases, companies are sort of thinking, rethinking, can they, do they need to sort of split Right? Do they need to have production in China for China and then separate for the rest of the world? Do they do R&D in China for China and then R&D for the rest of the world? Right? Do they need to create separate software platforms? Increasingly, a lot of the products that are sort of higher value added manufacturing are actually very digital, right? And that creates a whole set of data problems, for example. I think those are all issues. And I think, you know, to be somewhat sympathetic to the challenges of these big multinationals, the Chinese market is important for the way they operate. The The model that these big car makers, for example, depends on, uh, A, the profits from the Chinese market, which is the largest automotive market in the world. But B, especially now that we're thinking about these connected vehicles, electric vehicles, China is the most innovative ecosystem out there. So if you're pulling out from that market, you don't know what's going on in that market, you are going to be a laggard, essentially. So I think a lot of these companies really have this dilemma where they don't want to entirely rely on China. They don't want China to be a liability for their relations with you know, their home countries. But on the other hand, if they're not there in China, doing R&D in China, interacting with the Chinese consumer, hiring Chinese uh, engineers in some cases, and competing with Chinese companies, they, they're probably not going to have cutting-edge products, and they're not going to be able to, to compete as effectively in third markets, right? Because maybe the European market becomes more protected. The U.S. market is certainly pretty protected right now and might become more protected. But when you're competing for markets in Brazil, India, uh, right, all the Emerging markets are going to become bigger and bigger consumers of vehicles. You're going to be competing head to head with Chinese companies, which in many cases will be having will have set up factories there, and so they might even be receiving more government support. In terms of innovation, I'm curious how much of that is also indigenous, increasingly in China, because you talked about the importance of being 
even in the R&D space in China for those companies? Or is there, are there still concerns around IP theft or are we past that phase? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I think I actually, I want to make a note about this, right? When we're talking about clean tech, China is the leader, right? I think we talk about de-risking uh, and most people think about areas, export controls, right? Areas where Western countries, Europe, the US have sort of a leading edge. But when we're talking about clean tech, yes, a lot of the R&D originally happened in the US or Europe. Yes, a lot of these industries are, were nascent in Europe or the US. But at this point, a lot of the production is in China. A lot of the R&D is happening in China. A lot of the leading companies are Chinese. And so that's when I, you know, when I was hinting at, you know, when, as these companies go abroad, I think we need to start thinking a lot more strategically about how do you get those companies to invest outside of China and diffuse that technology in a way, the same way that happened with with uh, Western companies as they went abroad, right? Well, then I, I suppose it's also a question of if those companies go abroad, then can you make sure that they operate within the rules that, let's say, in the U.S. or in Europe, we have set there or do we feel compelled to tweak the rules so that we have access to those companies? Yes. I mean, that's the question, right? I think that just should be the debate. I, I don't think it's always clear what it should be. And I think there should be sort of active monitoring in some ways of how these trends develop. I think we're at an interesting moment where a lot of Chinese companies are becoming multinationals. But Chinese companies are particular in the sense that they come from a very particular political economy and they're, you know, it's documented that state intervention in the business world is actually increasing in China. I think you actually sort of, as a side note, you're seeing an interesting trend where some Chinese companies seem to be moving out of China because they don't want to be associated with China, right? So that's sort of an interesting trend as well. But you certainly, I think there's a lot of question marks there. But that said, they're going to internationalize no matter what, right? These companies are going global. You look at a company like BYD, which is now the biggest EV manufacturer in the world. They have multiple factories that have been either announced or under constructions in every continent at this point, except for Africa. So, you know, it's happening. So it's more of a question of under what conditions do we engage with this trend? And, uh, you know, how do we think about rules that actually benefit domestic employment, uh, ensure that there's fair competition, and sort of try and encourage some technological diffusion? Let's dive into yeah, the, yeah. the electric vehicles and because so BYD in, in the coming sort of onslaught onto the European market of these cheap but really advanced uh, electric vehicles that, you know, don't burn gas and are, and are good for the environment has caused, uh, I think, Brussels and many capitals and many companies in, in Europe to freak out. I mean, it's no secret that the, the German car companies have sort of been slow to embrace EV sector. And what the EU is accusing China, and they've brought a, a WTO case against China, of lavishing subsidies onto its electric vehicle companies, onto BYD. And so this is sort of unfair competition. I mean, that seems fairly legit. On the other hand, the cars are really cheap and really good. So what do we make of what, what the EU is doing right now? I think it like, you know, at the heart of this is that a lot of countries in the EU, I think perhaps more so than others, is realizing that the energy transition means industrial restructuring, right? And there's going to be winners and losers. And in some cases, those winners are not going to be the European companies, right? Or, you know, it's hard to imagine a world without VW or Stellantis. But if these companies are going to have to rethink their way of doing business, they're going to have to be very flexible. Otherwise, you know, they can just look at what happened to Kodak or Xerox, right? You know, they were leaders and then the technology went in a different direction. 
direction, right? So they're going For to have our to adjust. Young audience, Xerox is a photocopy machine. <laughs> yeah. there, and wa- Kodak, because <laughs> how we took pictures when I we were kids. I actually saw there's a new movie about Blackberry that was yeah. really fascinating. I saw it on anyway, the plane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think that's the way, you know, we, we think of these as giants uh, and they have really advanced technology in a technology that may not be what consumers want in 10 years, right? And increasingly do not even, you know, are not looking at that right now. And so they're making huge investments in the electric mobility, but they're going to have to be far more flexible, I think. But that's a company challenge, but it translates because these are such big companies and it's such an important industry, it translates then to the national level. And obviously, we know how many people are employed in the automotive sector in Europe. It's significant. I saw one estimate, it was uh, almost a million people in Germany, right? They're somewhat in, in, in involved in the automotive industry. That's that's a lot. The second thing is you can't talk about climate when you if you don't talk about China. And people usually say this because China is the biggest emitter. But I would say we need to think about that because China is the biggest producer of the technology you need to decarbonize, right? And so, and again, also a lot of the innovation is happening through China. Even when it's European innovation, a lot of the the actual marketization, the movement to the market happens through China because that's where you manufacture these things cheaply. So there's going to be if governments decide that's no longer a viable model, and I think increasingly governments, certainly in the US, that's that's been the decision, we need to rethink what is a viable model and how to make that happen. And then free, I think Europe is in a particularly difficult position, right? And we said, we said that China, uh, you know, there's increasingly direct competition with China. Country like Germany may be seeing its China shock right now, right? Our program, Scott Kennedy uh, and I wrote in 22, a sort of a review of what economists thought about the impact of, of trade with China after entry to the WTO in, in the U.S. And so we sort of reviewed what, what it actually, you know, what economists actually thought. And then we did a bit of an international comparison. And yes, other countries in Europe really benefited from better welfare, better labor relations. But a country like Germany actually benefited from the fact that it wasn't competing with China, right? It, its industrial structure was different. So there may be sort of a coming reckoning of what that means. Just yeah. quickly on that, I just want to. So, what, what you're saying there is that, like, you know, the sort of Rust Belt cities that we see in the US and other places in Europe that, you know, are blamed on China's free trade, on China coming into the market. And some of that has some, some merit that we've outsourced production of many things to, to China that led to deindustrialization of parts of the country. That Germany didn't, wasn't really affected by that because they're kind of, industry was a little bit more high-end, a little bit more boutique in some ways that wasn't impacted by Chinese production, especially in the automotive sector. But now we're seeing that. That's the yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a little more complicated than that. And they were affected by it. And obviously, it was coming at a time when Germany was, you know, the reunification had only happened like 10 years before. And yeah. uh, you had, you know, the Eastern European countries entering the EU, etc. But yeah, I mean, essentially, Germany was selling the machinery to China, with which the Chinese companies were then making the the textiles that were competing with Italian products, right? You know, that's sort of like what it, it in, to a certain extent was happening. But now China is producing that machinery, right? And so I think you're you're having a, a rethinking of, of what that means. And you're seeing that on a lot of industries. And I think what, you know, why clean tech is such a flashpoint is because this is the sort of the industry of the future. And there's a ton of investment going into this. And there's also been a ton of promise that, yeah, we'll be investing a lot in it. Yes, there will be losers, but we'll get all this new employment. We'll get these new industries, et cetera. And all of a sudden there's a realization of, yeah, I think we need to make more investments and really think strategically about how to make that happen because a lot of that could just flow back to China. 
And so I think that's sort of a big issue right now. And I mean, I think right now, to, to give you some numbers on uh, about this, like 2023, clean tech and uh, the, the actual uh, products we were looking at were batteries, EVs, solar panels. Wind was was much smaller, but the, the, the combination of these uh, products was 4.25% of China's exports. Now, by comparison, steel and iron and all steel and iron products made in China, that was 4.9% of its exports. And just think of how strategic and big of a steel, you know, China's the largest steel producer in the world, right? Obviously, a lot of that steel is not used domestically. But I think that just gives you a sense of how big these clean tech exports have become for China, how important they've become. And if you go back a few years in 2019, it was only 1.5%, right? So it's been a very rapid growth. And I think that explains what there's, why there's so much discomfort with this. And then obviously the EV industry, the automotive industry is sort of key because it's really threatening key domestic industry in Europe. Well, on the EV industry, that that's my own bias. Sometimes I wonder if it's also just it's it's the shiniest object at the moment. Obviously, it's super important. I understand because people drive a lot of cars, especially in the US, but in Europe as well. And people need to find another way to drive because we can't tell people they can't drive. But Overall, the clean tech industry, to me, is also this is how you make the labor and the environmental movements come together for the really ambitious goals that, at least on the EU side, we've set for 2030, 2035, 2050. And I agree with you 100%. That's why it's such a huge flashpoint, because if you tell people we have to transition, but none of these jobs are going to be here. None of the production is going to be here. I don't know how you keep making that argument and the the backlash will come fast and furious. Yeah, well, I would say EVs is why it's imp- are important because of that, right? Because there is a lot of employment in that industry, right? Solar, there, you know, people talk about solar as being really important, but nobody's making solar panels outside of China, right? So you're not, you know, there's no actual jobs to be lost. There are jobs maybe to be made. You want to get, get those jobs from China and move them elsewhere. But the EVs is sort of like a, something worth defending that, in some way. That's ways. a really good point. I think I was thinking about it more, less from the point of view of employment, more from the point of view of what we need to transition. Yeah. But that's an but important point. But I think point. one thing to just add to this, and then, I think, then we'll move back to EVs specifically, is that there's also a kind of a, a looming question of just how many manufacturing jobs are there, period, right? These are becoming increasingly automated industries. Most of the employment is in the installation or the sales of these things. But, uh, you know, I think in a way there's this thought that manufacturing was going to be a big part of the energy transition. And it certainly is still. But I think, you know, if you're thinking in the long term, that employment is probably going to go down significantly. And, uh, you know, I think there's increasingly talk in at least academia to think more about what does industrial policy mean for the service sector? Because that's going to be a bigger part of, of employment. It is. So maybe to wrap up the EV discussion. The EU case, is this, does this make sense that the EU is doing this or is this basically the EU trying to kind of close the barn door as the horse is sort of, you know, already kind of halfway out, I guess. And can I add to that? Have we heard anything from Beijing on this case? What's their take on this? Um, Okay. So it makes sense in the sense that there was a big surge in exports to Europe. So if you look at the numbers, in 2023, 54% of Chinese exports of EVs were going towards the European Union. Now, that had actually, like, the growth had really slowed in 2023. So it was even, you know, the, the percentage was much higher um, in, in the previous years. 
a big percentage of that was actually Tesla. So in 2023, 34% of all exports from China were to Teslas, right? Not, we don't know where they were going, but I, I presume a good chunk were going to, the, to Europe, right? You know, so I think there is a motivated, that motivated a response on the EU side in part because the concern was, you know, you need to give time to European manufacturers to sort of adjust and, and make those investments. I think there always is a danger with trade. There's always a trade-off with tariffs, right? You create a protective market, your you know, domestic manufacturers don't have as much incentive to react, right? That's always the case. In the case, though, I think what's happening now in Europe is that you're seeing a lot, a lot more Chinese interest in investing in Europe. You've already seen that in batteries. That's been happening for, for some time now in the battery industry. And there's an increasing talk of Chinese car makers investing in Europe. Now, if you talk to European car makers, they say, well, you know, if they come into Europe and they face our same exact costs, that could be fair. And so I think that goes back to the, to the question that Tian had earlier about, you know, how do you think about that, uh, you know, foreign direct investment by Chinese companies, right? And so I think you know, there, there's need for, for that discussion uh, and, and thinking that through. So I think that's really a key difference between the U.S. and Europe, where I think Europe is far more open to Chinese foreign direct investment, as long as it like meets, you know, requirements and there's pretty strict requirements in Europe. So maybe lastly, let's talk uh, about solar. There's an as astonishing statistic that I read in The Economist that in 2023, the equivalent of one nuclear reactor of solar power was installed every single week in, in Europe. And in some ways, what you could argue what Europe has done since Russia's invasion is it, it's transferred kind of its dependence on Russian gas to dependence on Chinese solar panels. And I think there's, there's this argument about is this a strategic vulnerability for Europe that it's now so going to be so dependent on just buying these cheap Chinese solar panels? Our colleagues at Bruegel, or our friends at Bruegel have put out a report and saying, well, actually, this isn't really a strategic dependence because you buy them and then you have them. It's not as if it's not like gas where it's this continuous supply that you need. What is your take of the, the kind of Chinese solar situation, how that impacts Europe? Absolutely. I agree with uh, with our friends at Bruegel. I don't think solar panels are equivalent to gas, right? You buy a solar panel, it's it works for 30, 40 years. You can even plan when you're going to change it. To be perfectly honest, if in 30, 40 years you decide that you don't want to buy a Chinese solar panel, you can get some other source. We'll have of, nuclear fusion. Uh, yes, then, exactly. So right. You can go in some other direction. I think solar is tricky, right? Because the, it is so high, the production is so highly concentrated in China. And even when it's not in China, and for example, there's increasing production in Southeast Asia, it's often Chinese companies. And there's also the human rights question, right? So there's a lot of complicated things. And obviously, the production in China, I would say the biggest risk is potential supply chain disruptions, right? And we saw that during COVID, right? There were shortages of supply, uh, solar panels. Didn't destroy anybody's economy that there were shortages of, of solar panels. But of course, it would have been nice to install more of those solar panels, right? It, it, so I think it's not necessarily a national security risk, but I do think there's some economic risks there. And so I think the diversification of supply chain would be good. It's challenging because it's a really low margin industry. And actually, we are moving there very clearly towards overcapacity. So anybody who's trying to set up a solar factory outside of China is competing with extraordinarily low prices coming from China. And increasingly so because there's uh, increasingly large factories being built in China. So it's, it's really tough to think about a way to make solar viable, economically viable outside of China. 
Well, I think in other industries, it's much easier to envision sort of an economic pathway to diversification. With solar, it's a little more challenging. To me, that also is a great way to bring it back to a point you made with your balancing act brief, which is in all of these different industries and all of these economic relationships, what we really need to do is understand the real economic risks and the real security risks, not making broad comparisons, as you were just mentioning, Max, with solar panels and gas exports, et cetera. Having very tangible data to look at is important in our analysis. And I think it's really important that you're writing about this and that we're having this conversation here. So maybe that might be a, a great place to, to leave it um, with so much more that we could talk about and critical minerals and more than EVs, trains, etc. So thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Thank you. This is great. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Sean Falk, and to Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.